Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a news story about your world. Today's guest is Sergio Chapa, a reporter-turned-author who's working on a book about his recent journey along the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll talk about the interesting places and faces he met along the way and how that experience inspired him to put words and photos into a book. Thank you for following The Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. Imagine renting a truck, packing some clothes, grabbing some snacks, and taking a trip across America's Southwest. From the mouth of the Rio Grande River in Texas to California's Pacific Ocean beaches. That's the kind of crazy idea my friend Sergio Chapa lives for. My adventures with Sergio have always been full of fun and laughs. So this 2,000-mile odyssey is right on brand. Born and raised in Texas, just a half hour away from my hometown in the Rio Grande Valley, Sergio has spent years exploring nature, the border, and most importantly, asking questions to satisfy his curiosity. He studied journalism at the University of Texas at Austin, and over his 17-year career, Sergio has worked in both print and television in the Rio Grande Valley, Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. Sergio once received a GLAAD award for a mini-documentary named Fuera del Closet, Gay Latino Immigrants in Dallas. He has twice traveled across the entire U.S.-Mexico border, visiting communities on both sides. Inspired by those travels, Sergio is currently writing a book named Frontera, A Journey Across the U.S. and Mexico. We get the honor of landing the first interview with Sergio about writing this book and becoming an author. I want to welcome to the show my very good friend, Sergio Chapa, who I've known for almost 20 years. How long? Wow. It, 2006 is when I first... About 2006 to now, about 14 years. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah, long no, time. No, no, and, so Sergio. And, and a beautiful friendship, too. Yeah, welcome to the show. I consider you one of my good friends. Okay, don't push it. <laughs> no, Sergio, welcome to the show. I, I just want to say thank you for always supporting uh, my advocacy in the community. You were a newspaper reporter, and you were one of the very first people that reached out to me when I was organizing in the Latino community, in the gay Latino community. And you were working for Aldea, which was a Spanish language newspaper in Dallas that was going into this story, you know, just saying, hey, what's going on in the gay community? We never write about it. And there's all this organization around um, LULAC, um, recognizing the LGBT part of its family. And you gave us a decent story. You put me on the map and you helped <laughs> elevate me. And I really want to appreciate that you did that for me way back in 2006. It helped steamroll a lot of conversations within the community about LGBT acceptance in the Latino community. Some were already happening, but this kind of put a spotlight on it. And you never gave up. You kept writing about this subject and you even got right. nominated for a GLAAD award, correctly? Not just nominated. Won a GLAAD oh, award for a, <laughs> that war, award that for you the. Had. You know, it was it was it was um, it was it was one of the little proudest moments of my career because um, you know you know like you said um, there was a very pivotal moment like what you did and 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 everybody else at the at LULAC what they did was fighting for inclusion and um, 
you know, uh, keeping LGBT folks included in, in, um, in civil rights discussions and things with, uh, with LULAC and Hispanic rights groups was, was pivotal because uh, what, what I think you see with like, you know, LULAC and other Hispanic rights organizations is that is LGBTs are accepted and included in other community of color, communities of color, it's not so much, you know, but in the, uh, you know, in the Latino community and the Hispanic community, you know, it's, it's very much different and it's all, you know, you know, thanks to, to the work you did, of course. And, um, but yeah, no, so covering that, I was very happy to cry. <laughs> Back then I was a, a police reporter. So I was covering, you know, cops and courts. Right. And then every once in a while, you just kind of get a general assignment story, but this is one that I had kind of, kind of heard about through the community. And then I decided, well, I'll, I'll cover that. You know, I'll, I'll go to these guys' meetings, crash the party, see if they're willing to talk and do a story. And sure enough, it, it worked. And but you know, it, it that 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 encounter turned me on into uh, a, a lot of a lot of very uh, cool and interesting people, and it led to other stories, feature stories. I, I made a mini documentary called "Gay uh, Gay Latino Immigrants in Dallas," and um, and that was well received at. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very popular video on YouTube, and it was very received. It was played at a at the uh, National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association conference in San Diego, and then it kind of snowballed into a story called Tacos y Sacones, which in Spanish is a very clever pun, <laughs> but in English it just means tacos and high heels. So you and know, I love, I love that story that you did because it talked about yeah how because everybody always just assumes that every Latinos. Uh, going to be homophobic but you talked about a beautiful story how all these mexican immigrant families are just finally get time to go out and have dinner with their families after seven days of hard working you know and are working long hours they take their families out to a restaurant the local restaurant and the restaurant owner hires drag queens to entertain them in the stars from Latin America, the very famous ones that they grew up with, impersonating those stars. And for just a little bit, they get this beautiful performance and they know it's a man. The children may not know, but the families, the older members, they know it's a man performing or an individual that's performing. And it, it was a beautiful story because you got to see that people appreciate art at its basic, you know, it's art that's being appreciated. And right. But it, but it was also like an unexpected intersection of two communities, which is what, what made it great, you know, journalism. You had two communities that making contact that were very unlikely to be allies or friends, but yet they were getting along and not, not only getting along, but enjoying each other's company. You know, you had the LGBT and the Latinos. And, and it was so funny because you would go to these, these, these shows at these restaurants and they're just scattered all throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. They, Every, they became so popular, everybody started offering them. But you would see funny things like people bringing along their abuelita, their grandmother, you know, <laughs> these things. Or like, or like you have the little baby carrier, um, you know, just the little newborn sitting there on the table, you know, in the carrier along, along with these shows. Or the wives would get into it and buy, you know, mock lap dances for their husbands from these dreadful <laughs> entertainers. And everybody would just laugh and have a good time. It's still beautiful. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to say that it, that's still going on. It's a it's I'm very popular going entertainment. On. Yeah, yeah, that's a. I mean, and and, and I mean, and and these these people the, the the who attend the shows and go to these restaurants. I mean, they're hardworking people. You know, the men they work in construction and they do labor and they do 
they're building highways and high rises and all these things in Dallas. And then, you know, the women are, are working, you know, in restaurants and in hotels and, you know, doing cleaning work and all types of, you know, labor. And you're right. You're absolutely right. This is like the one night they have to go out, eat a good meal and, you know, have a few laughs, you know, and, and, and I, it was a beautiful story and it was well received and it won a glad award, as you said. So I'm very proud of that work. You've been reporting about Texas, its people, and now its resources as a journalist for almost two decades. What inspired you to write this book about the border? So the big news up front is that me and a dear friend of mine, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, and she's a professor right there by you, as you know, and you've met her. Um, She's at George Mason University in Washington, D.C. So, um, and she's a border expert, border scholar, and, and border expert, and drug cartel expert, and um, and um, a political science professor. But but we met. We had humble beginnings when we met. I was working at a television station called KGBT, um, Channel Four. That's a CBS affiliate down in the Rio Grande Valley, deep in South Texas. For for your viewers who don't know where that is, it's right there at the little tip where where the Rio Grande exits into the Gulf of Mexico. So me and her met years ago through Twitter, actually, because we'd both been covering the drug cartel war uh, raging in Mexico at the time. And that was, uh, oh, I want to say 2012. And it was at the peak of its violence back then. It was particularly a bloody drug war with decapitations and gruesome murders and and all all types of things. So we met in that context. And, you know, we were just sitting at the uh, Oyster Bar restaurant. I still I remember love the oyster day. bar restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Off, off the oyster bar off Paredes Line Road in Brownsville. And I, I remember uh, we were both having a big bowl of caldo de mariscos, seafood soup, which is a specialty there. And we're saying, and this is in, this is in I say this is in December 2012 or so. And um, so it was a cold day and soup was the perfect thing. And uh, we both said to each other, you know, we kind of said it both at the same time, jinx, jinx, jinx. We're like, I want to travel the whole border one day, you know, like from Brownsville to San Diego or Brownsville to Tijuana. And we, and you know, and we both, oh, me too. And so from there, we kind of hatched this, uh, this idea to drive from Brownsville, Texas to Tijuana, Mexico, and then going the entire length of the border, visiting each international crossing and seeing each each uh, community well it didn't quite work out that way on that first trip we because you know we had to schedule this ahead of time so in june 2013 we took our first trip from brownsville to el paso and then we told ourselves we'd have to go back to do the other leg um but yeah we, we took that trip it was in the hot week in june 2013 and we set a course right there from from downtown brownsville all the way to el paso and uh and it was it was it was it was beautiful, Jesse. I mean, we 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 fell in love with the border, and and I think that trip was what planted the seeds for for later trips because it wasn't our our, our it wasn't our last trip. You know, in December 2013, we we flew to El Paso and then drove from El Paso to San Diego, doing the same thing, visiting each one each community along the way. You traveled nearly 2,000 miles of the U.S.-Mexican border. How different were parts of the terrain and the people you encountered? Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely. I mean, the, the border is, is, uh, is such a beautiful place, Jesse. And, um, you know, the, the terrains, as you said, are, 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 are 
quite varied. Um, you know, the border has a reputation of being a dangerous place. You know, there's a border wall, there are drug cartels, there's illegal immigrants, but, but man, it's, it's, uh, I see, I mean, yes, those things are there, but they're not the, they're not the totality of the, of the, of the, of the region. There's much more. Like when you go to the, where the Rio Grande empties into the Gulf of Mexico, it's a beautiful white sandy beach named Boca Chica Beach, which means in Spanish means small mouth beach, you know, and why they call it that is because the Rio Grande is, is, you know, people think of it, romanticize it as being this, this big wide river, meandering river that divides two nations. But when it gets to the Gulf of Mexico, it has a very small mouth, you know, that just, it, it looks like you could just hopscotch over the river, you know, over there. And so it's, it's a beautiful beach there. And then a little further in, inland in is, is, a, is a lush forest right, right in the southmost area of Brownsville called the Sable Palm Forest. And it's just green. One of the most verdant greens you'll ever see in your life with those those shade loving and sable palm trees and they're just beautiful dense it looks almost like a jungle in there you know and then as you head further west you know the landscape gets more dry it gets hillier and you you go through like all these you know kind of mesquite brush zones and then when you finally get up to, you know to west texas and the big bend it's like these majestic desert landscapes and um there's mountains and and one of the things I love about traveling in uh, West Texas in the summer is uh, are the the monsoon thunderstorms because you just be in a desert landscape and in comes like a cloud in a thunderstorm and it's just like a little shower of rain in the middle of the desert and then there's like a lightning bolt or something or a rainbow in the desert and it's a, you know very beautiful moments and and we, we weren't expecting that when we were traveling there and it was it was very beautiful to see. Um, and then, of course, as you get further west, you've got to go through the saguaro cactuses of southern Arizona. And then you, you go to the, uh, you know, places like the Salton Sea in California and the Imperial Desert and Imperial Valley. And then finally, you reach the Pacific Ocean, which is like, you know, I mean, just the waters are so cold, even in the summer. It's, it's so refreshing. So, yeah, so a wide variety of landscapes. Yeah. You just painted a beautiful picture of 2,000 miles of just gorgeous scenery. You probably came across a lot of state and federal parks, uh, national parks. So were they in good condition? Have they been ignored? No, 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 they're, they're, they're fine. Um, you know, and, and people, people of the border, um, you know, rely on them for recreation and, and, and everything like that. You know, there's a lot of parks are good for the border, and I'll tell you why. Um, one thing they said, you know, what's the best deterrent to smuggling? What's the best deterrent to like, you know, drug traffickers or illegal immigrant smuggling? It's parks. Because, you know, if you have a park and, you know, people are going with their families, you're not going to smuggle drugs through there. You know, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, send a load of immigrants where people are likely to see this panic and call the police, you know, or border patrol. Yeah. And so some of the most beautiful parks in the nation are along the border, like, like that Sable Palm Sanctuary I mentioned in Brownsville, beautiful place. Everyone kind of smuggles around it because there's always <laughs> tourists there, you know? There's the Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge near, um, near, um, near Alamo, Texas. Same thing, beautiful. The National Butterfly Center in Mission, you know, which is an important migratory stop for, you know, north and southbound butterflies going from 
Canada to the United States and then Mexico and then, you know, back again. Um, also, you know, a beautiful place. And then you have Amistad. Oh my God, Jesse. Um, there's this lake, a reservoir called Amistad Lake in Del Rio, which I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a, a beautiful um, national, what they call a national recreation area. And so all the land surrounding the reservoir, it's this man-made lake, is, is protected parkland. And people can camp there and, and um, you know, go fishing and there's boat ramps and it's a very popular activity place. There's no smuggling there. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense. And, um, <clears throat> but you need to see it one day because, uh, because, you know, it has these limestone cliffs, chalk white limestone cliffs. And then the water below it is just like this turquoise, blue, green. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's such a sight to behold. And the water's cold, uh, in the, even in the summer. So it feels amazing. And, you know, people think of the Rio Grande as dirty. And I'm not going to lie, it is in many places. But there, it's beautiful. It's inviting. It's cool. The, riv- the Rio Grande River in Del Rio is, is amazing. It's just has, it has this amazing kind of sapphire or turquoise color that, that you just want to just jump in, jump in, you know, and go for a swim. Yeah. So, and then Big Bend National Park. Yeah. So all the parks are well kept and they serve an important function too as like thwart- thwarting you know, smuggling activity through just regular people, you know, being there. People. You talked about all the stuff that you, you encountered, the nature, the terrain, the landmarks. How about the people? Which side was... Oh, my God. Because you got to go visit, you know, border communities on both sides of the river. Which side was more welcoming? Right. Um, so there were three trips, you know, like I said, June 2013. December 2013, and then we did a, a follow-up trip last last June 2019. But this time we did the whole thing in two weeks, Brownsville to Tijuana, right? Wow. And I, I got to tell you, Jesse, in all those trips, we met all three of those trips, three of those separate trips. We met some of the most amazing people, you know, we've met in our entire lives. The, the border is filled with very welcoming and warm people. Um, they may be a little guarded sometimes, but it doesn't take long to break the ice. You know, they may, walking by them, walking among them, they seem, you know, like, in, on, especially like, you know, on the Mexican side, maybe they seem, they're not smiling, they're just kind of, mm, dour, not dour, but just very, mm, you know, uh, unapproachable. But then you talk to them, and then there's a smile, and then there's yeah. all the help. Because, you know, oftentimes we're like, lost, looking for this and that. And then, um, especially on the Mexican side, and Oh, it's right over there. Da, 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 da. Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, and it's very, very widening. Suddenly we have like, you know, made new friends. But, but you know, there's, <clears throat> there are a lot of amazing people who make the border their home and, and, um, and, you know, carved out businesses there that we met, um, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's very cool. I'll never forget this, this, this one woman, um, her name's Jennifer Walker. She's from the Dallas area, actually, originally. But um, she runs a general store in a town called Candelaria. And it's uh, one of the, the most remote towns in Texas. It's, um, there's only one road in or out, like one paved road in or out, I should say. And it's about an hour north of Presidio. There's, no, there's nowhere else to the, to the north, south, east, or west. You know, and the river is right there, the Rio Grande River. Actually, she lives in Ruidosa, which is near Candelaria. But either way, they're both the most remote towns. But she runs this general store, 
and it's the only store around. So you can, you can drink a beer at the bar. Uh, you can order a pizza and get it made there. You can buy kind of, it's not like an HEB by any means, but you can buy <laughs> kind of basic groceries there. You know, there's, yeah. there's no pro there's no produce section, but, but you can buy basic groceries there. Um, and, and, you know, she's, if you don't want to drive an hour back to Presidio, um, you know, and which is what we did, which is what we did. And so she's carved out a, a life and she talks to everybody there who comes through the store, stays at the Chinati hot springs, which are, which are this amazing, um, um, amazing kind of like hotel and hot springs. Like you can soak in these hot, these spring fed hot tubs with all this thermal water. It's, it's, it's brilliant. But anyways, I mean, like, so she's very welcoming and, and she, you know, and, and I mean, we just sat down for a beer and it ended up there for an hour, you know, just chatting away. And uh, I think border people are very much like that. I think that they're very welcoming and, you know, questioning, like finally when like, Oh, where are you from? And, and all that. And I, I, I uh, it's disarming because, you know, it has a reputation of being a dangerous place, but actually it's a very friendly place. Despite the recession and cartel violence, one industry that is surprisingly still thriving are the Mexican gay nightclubs. What was your experience at those establishments and with the LGBT community on your trip? So it was most interesting in, um, in the June 2012 trip and the December uh, oh, I'm sorry, the June 2013 trip and the December 2013 trip, because you got to remember, Jesse, back then it was <clears throat> kind of the height of the drug war, right? Yeah. So this phenomenon in Mexico with the drug war going on, people aren't going to bars. They're not going to nightclubs. They're not going to eat dinner at fancy restaurants. You know, it was rather, rather like the pandemic. Sounds like it, doesn't right. it? <laughs> exactly. Right. But, uh, but uh, same effect, but different cause, huh? And uh, so uh people weren't were going to these clubs but you know in the in the june 2013 trip i think we were in uh i think where was it at oh yes in del rio and ciudad acuna and um and we cross on the mexican side and there's this this poster up you know with the for a for a drag show at a bar down the street <laughs> and sure enough this place is open and we're like what is going on here how can this place stay open when the rest of the strip is closed, you know? Yeah. And it was such an interesting phenomenon that we kept seeing over and over again across the, the, the U S Mexico border. All the gay bars, of course, are on the Mexican side, right? There's, yeah. These are small towns and it well, with the exception of El Paso and a couple of the big communities. But, but I mean, like, you know, these, these border crossing towns, all there's, there's a gay bar on the Mexican side and it's the only place open. And, um, you know, one of the, I think one of the missed opportunities was to, you know, try to talk to the owners of the patrons to find out wh why and how they were still open, you know, um, how were they able, did they strike a deal with the cartels? Were the cartels afraid of them? Like, like if you, if a cartel member tries to shake them down for money and they touch them, oh my God, they're gay now, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, maybe it's maybe, just maybe going to show you. That gays, yeah. where there's a will, there's a way, and they're gonna find oh, a way yeah. to stay open and keep the show going. But that's just right, and you. But I mean, but but it was even it was even more in, intense in Reynosa, you know, across the border from McAllen, um, you know, because Reynosa was the center of the some of the deadliest fighting in the border. It was a it was a turf war between the Gulf Cartel and their former enforcers, the Zetas. 
And then, then later on, it became between factions of the Gulf Cartel after they won that territory. Yeah. And, um, but, but they had like five gay bars still open throughout this whole <laughs> ordeal. And, and they would get packed with people, you know, and, and, uh, and, and it, was, it was amazing. Um, and there was even in Reynosa, there was even like this, uh, I, I guess you could call it a drag bar. And everybody would go, not just, not just the LGBT community, but everybody. And it was like you said, like these shows of all these entertainers. You could see, you could see, uh, you know, Thalia, Paulina Rubio, Selena, <laughs> Paquita Lado Barrio, and and like, you know, all these, all these bars, all shapes. They brought them all in. Uh, entertainers, yeah. And you could see that in Reynosa, and it was just like a kind of a, a nightclub experience where they had tables and chairs and seating, and then you know, wait staff, <laughs> you know. And then everybody would just be watching the show all while this drug war is going on around you. I, I've got to say the people of Reynosa are, are very resilient. Um, I think when, when the violence first started, it was the reaction was very much, oh no, we need to stay at home. We need to like, you know, not leave, you know, not, not go anywhere. But then after a while, they were just like, life goes on. I mean, there would be a gun battle and go, oh, that was interesting. Well, let's go get tacos, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, they, they, they're very, they, you, you can, human, human beings are amazing. They can adapt to anything. This, this beautiful trip that you took, would you recommend it for anybody? And if they do take this, what should they take on this trip? Wow. Uh, it's a very difficult trip. There are long distances and, uh, you know. Um, but take a good and, and if, partner, someone who has uh, stories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I lucked out. Me, me and Lupita are only a few months apart, and we have identical musical tastes. So there is no fighting over the radio, you know? I mean, we both like music from the United States and, and English and Spanish, like yes. the United States and Mexico, from like the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Like, our soundtracks were like identical. So that was key. Take a double charger, a phone charger, one with okay. two outlets and two power cords. You do not want to be fighting for for um, <laughs> charging the phone on this. And then I recommend uh, taking some food to make. Um, you know, uh, do you make sandwiches or, um, or other things you like? You know, bag of Doritos, something, something, because mm -hmm. there are long distances with no restaurants and there are lots of small towns um, with very limited dining options. So if you have specialty diet, you better bring your own food. Um, because you may not find it in these places you're going. I mean, there are some surprises, like we were in Del Rio, and there's a Thai food restaurant, you know? <laughs> a very good one, I might add. It's called good. Jitra. So you decided to put this journey into this book. What's the book called, and when can we expect it? Yes, yes. So um, all these trips and all the photos from all these trips are going to be uh, put in a, in a coffee table-style book. And it's called Frontera, which is Spanish for border. So Frontera, a journey across the U.S.-Mexico border, and it'll be published by, by uh, TCU Press. It's Texas Christian University Press in, from Fort Worth. And it'll be out on bookshelves on January 2022. So okay. that gives us about a year to write, a few months to edit, and then it's published. I got, it's part of this spring I catalog. Got, I got the honor of seeing some of those photographs at the Wilson Center when you presented up here in D.C. You were invited by the Wilson Center, very prestigious, 
located right down in the government sector of Washington, D.C. And you showcase a lot of the photos that y'all took. And they were beautiful. Talk about color that pops out. Everything from flowers to mount, you know, the mountain ranges to, well, hill ranges. I'm thinking. And um, the people, the, the, yes. the religious imagery that you just came across. It was really beautiful. Did you and Lupita yeah. take those photos, or was it just you? No, it, it, I, I'm, I'm out of out of the two. I'm the photographer, right? You're the photographer. Okay, well, you did. Yeah. A good job. And, uh, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, the border is such a place of deep faith, you know, on both sides. So it was important to capture that. And then, you know, the people. I think you're referring to when the photo from the uh, from when the asylum seekers are at the shelter getting a meal before they're trying to cross. Onto the exactly. U.S. side, yes, that, that's exactly it. And then the cross it, yeah. that was put in front of a Customs and Border Agency. Mm. Oh, right. Oh, God, that was so important. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah, so when we went on the June 2019 trip. That was at the height of the asylum seeker cross uh, crisis. And that's why we decided to do the trip again. We, we, went, we went on the first trip uh, during the drug war. And so the second one was the asylum seeker crisis. We wanted to go and see what had changed, what was different. And, um, and there, the, so the photo you're referring to was taken outside the uh, border patrol station in Clint, Texas, where children were being housed, you know, separated from their parents and being housed in tents in a jail-like setting with those tin, awful tinfoil blankets, the whole bit. But some unknown activists left this beautiful little statue of the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus in front of the border patrol sign. And it was just made for a dramatic photo and a stark contrast and a reminder, you know, that the, the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus and, you know, and Joseph were asylum seekers themselves as they fled Herod's violence, um, his murder rampage to kill the firstborn child or the, every male born child in, in Judea, they fled to Egypt and they sought asylum and found it there. And it was, just a, it was just a nice reminder. I loved it, I loved it. It was a beautiful photo. And um, I just wanna thank you so much for taking this trip, um, chronicling it and taking photos. I've always admired the way you've always been proud of your roots, where you come from. You and I come from the same part of Texas, the Rio Grande Valley. And not a, a lot of people tend to leave and never want to come back or never want to talk about their hometowns because they had, they had a hard life, which I understand. That's how they cope. But somehow, we, we, I, I get to see a lot of people like you that are proud of where they came from. And they love their culture, both sides. They embrace the the Norteño and the 80s pop music. You know, you're just this right. wonder and you have this beautiful skill of writing that you get to share with the whole world what you grew up in the world that you grew up with and some of the beautiful things that your world offers. And hopefully when people pick up this book in 2022, they'll be able to see, you know, this is a, a location that I should go visit sometime. Yes, yes, uh, that, that is exactly the goal of the book. We want to shatter stereotypes and, uh, and uh, yeah, and open people's eyes to the beauty of the border. If people want to learn or keep up with you um, about this book, um, do you have social media where they could follow you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, the best one I, I would say is, is Twitter. 
Um, I'm at Sergio Chapa, all one word, um, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, the next one where I'm most active on is is LinkedIn. So, but that's more for, for business news and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But Twitter's the fun one, yeah. So you're at Houston Chronicle right now, right. writing, um, and you're headed to in a couple of weeks. Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Wow. I'll be That's working for starting a new job with Bloomberg covering U.S. natural gas markets and the LNG industry, which there is, they're trying to develop, as you know, three LNG export terminals at the port of Brownsville. So it's, uh, that's a U.S. Mexico border region. So, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And, as, and, and, you know, Mexico imports so much natural gas from the United States. Um, I think 6 billion cubic feet a, per day. And me and Lupita, on our, on, especially on our second trip, we were checking out the cross-border pipelines, you know, like the controversial Trans-Pecos pipeline, which they built in the Big Bend region. We saw it, and we saw it where it goes under the Rio Grande. They had to do horizontal drilling under the river to get the pipeline, you know, to go across to the Mexican side, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's all connected. There's, there's connections there. I mean, you know, there are power cross-border power lines, there are cross-border pipelines. Um, there are strong economic ties between the two countries. The people, people all, just so infuriating, all people think about as a border is like the wall and smugglers and bad. But there's so much good. There's billions of dollars of trade, legitimate trade. There are literally like hundreds of millions of dollars of avocados crossing the border in Laredo every day, you know. And then you have natural gas going south and electricity. It's, you know, and hopefully this book sets, sets things, sets the record straight about the border. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so much, Sergio, for coming on the podcast. I look forward to picking up that copy soon. No problem, Jesse. Thank you for all your support. Thank you. Thank you. It meant so much when you could join us in DC. Thank you. Thank you. That's why you got the first interview. <laughs> thank you. You see, exclusive. But no, thanks for being there for the LGBT community in the Latino world. It means a lot. Thank you.